0: This week on the show, we cover Sunray laptops in deep length and even longer, MIPS and getting root on them. So, that's definitely something for the uh, nostalgics among us. That is something newer about OpenZFS for HPC clusters. A self hosted bookmarks using DAV and HTTPD and OpenBSD tutorial. Another tutorial deals with Terraform, Proxmox, and OpenBSD. Wake on LAN Plex servers to save power. Against Innovation, an article that sparks debate, probably, and more. This week's episode of BSD. Now. Now. Yeah. BSD Now, episode 511, Against Innovation, recorded on the 24th of May, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash BSD Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, everyone. I am Benedict Heuschling, your host, and I'm Tom Jones. Hello everyone. Well, I said that twice, so it counts more. And uh well, what's the week? Uh it's been busy so far, but nothing as busy as our headlines,
1: which is um a bit of nostalgia. Yeah, this this comes from oldvcr.blogspot.com. Uh, old vcr.blogspot.com. I like frantically searching trying to find this person's name. I can't remember how to find people's names on blogspot. Um this article is called Of Sunray Laptops, MIPS, and Getting Root On Them. And it's very long with a lot of pictures. So just assume that every time I stop to breathe, there's a picture of an old computer or a sun thing, because there's, <laughs> there's a lot. Um, just continue breathing. That's what I need. i gotta, I got to fix that chime. I said it's so annoying. I, I, I don't know what it is. Somebody, well, I, I, while I was at BSC Can, somebody's installed a chime in the garden that sounds like an iPhone notification sound, and it's just the right trigger. Um, This is like someone playing the MSN Messenger sound in a song, which there is a song with MSN Messenger sound in. Anyway, um, I like Sunray laptops. They make surprisingly useful thin clients. Here, going from right to left, I'm playing Quake on my Solaris Ultrabook 2i, while it serves a Sunray session via Sunray server software, SRSS, to my silver Sunray 2 in the middle, and my AccuTech Gobi on the left, I'm Root. Oh, yeah, from right to left. Okay, I was doing that backwards in my head. Uh, it's three laptops and a picture. Wait, what? Root on a thing client. Let's rewind a little. Picture of a Sun mouse pad. Uh, in 1984, some Microsystems adopted as their corporate slogan John Cage's famous observation that the network is the computer. One of my one of many neat fragments of history left raw after Larry, destroyer of worlds, Ellison Oracle, bought them in... In 2010, fittingly, at least to me, Cloudflare acquired the rights to the disused trademark in 2019. This is an official Sun mousepad as picked up back in the day. False starts like news aside, Sun believed in the idea so deeply that they put significant worth resources into developing thin client service by their hardware to complement their more typical workstations. In Sun's ideal world, a user would run programs on a central server, a Sun, of course, Having their session follow their smart cards seamlessly from terminal to terminal, along with any shared resources they might require. While some produced the Java OS based Java Station in 1996, ironically based on Oracle's network computer concept, it used relatively expensive hardware, being essentially a miniaturized, miniaturized Spark Station 4. Instead, the new proof of concept for a cheaper, more connected world was the 1997 Network Terminal Newt. One wonders if that abbreviation was a coincidence based on Sun's MicroSpark 2-EP CPU, uh, that, and that prototype it evolved into the first Sunray Think client in 1999, codenamed Corona. Uh, it's, it's a picture of a dog, but it's a dog called Money, and it's an advert for Sun. I can't read what the dog is saying. Dogs don't normally speak, so who knows. I don't know, like, I know you hit the bodies. Uh, we first talked about Sunray Line some months back by looking at one of its last examples, the laptop Tadpole M1400, and it's General Dynamics rebadged. And it is General Dynamics rebadged. Sun produced the first generation Sunrays not only as sidecar desktop devices that connected to a monitor, keyboard, and mouse, but even built some of them into CRT displays reminiscent of Apple's contemporary G3 iMac. However, just like it had to go cheaper to win, if Sunray was to become truly omnipresent, then it would have to go portable as well. That was where the 500 nanometer MicroSpark 2 EP, a diminutive for it, was. Sparks at the time couldn't make the grade. The Sunray 1G required 20 watts to run, not counting the display it was connected to, and at least 5 watts of that went to the 100 megahertz CPU alone. Downclocking it wasn't an option either, as the CPU was already too underpowered to cope with the stream. A 2006 InfoWorld article accused early Sunrays of being network clobbering and stuttering, so Sun jumped from Spark to MIPS with the Sunray 2, and that's where our story begins. Um, it's a picture of a PowerPoint slide with four quadrants, an arm on the bottom left, and MIPS on the top right, and they've both been circled, but I can't read any more of the text to tell you what else it says. There's the words performance and power consumption on the left and bottom axes. You have to look at the article to get the full content of the pictures. The MIPS migration occurred... I think the implication is that MIPS is higher power, but more performant, and so you should pick it. Oh, okay. It's an advert for something called alchemy. That's what's happening. So, sorry. Um, <laughs> the migration occurred as a consequence of converting the first generation sun rays to sun's bespoke Copernicus SOC, which combined the 2EP core with four megabytes of DRAM on chip the ATI Rage 128 handling 2D graphics remained separate with its own dedicated memory. During Copernicus's development, Sunray engineer Mark Schneider had considered using the new low powered MIPS AU1 core developed by fabulous semiconductor company Alchemy, explaining the PowerPoint slide, but there was little appetite at the time for rewriting the onboard, onboard firmware to run a completely new architecture. Alchemy was founded in 1999 by refugees from DEC's strong arm development team, which was dissolved after Intel acquired the IP in 1997 and turned it into their Xscale CPU line. Other team members went on to found Cybyte, which developed a MIPS core of their own. The AU1 core was a scalar in order core based on the 1999 MIPS 32 specification with a five pipeline stages. It featured an R4000 class MMU a 16 or 32-bit multiply accumulator unit, and a one-bit-per-cycle hardware divider. However, to die, shrink the space, and reduce power consumption, the A1U eliminated the FPU, removed support for MIPS 16 compressed instructions and in supervisor mode, and replaced virtual address transition with a TLB-based strategy and an exception handler in software instead of having the hardware walk page tables. It could also completely stop all clocks to the CPU or unit until reactivated. That's cool. The A1U chip was the AU1000 SoC in 2001, a uh, 180 nanometer part with integrated SD RAM flash, USB serial, IRD and UR, um, Ethernet controllers, it had 16K of I and D cache and ran up to 500 megahertz with a top TDP of only 900 milliwatts, that's cool. Although the AU, AU1000 family, notably the beefier 1.2 Watt AU1500 onboard PCI controller, Got design wins in a few embedded applications, Alchemy was still just a small startup and ran into issues landing a second funding round required to expand. In 2002, AMD bought Alchemy outright to directly compete with Xscale in the embedded sector and introduced the 130 nanometer AU1550 in 2004. A die shrink of the AU1500 attended for high security network applications with the SafeNet security engine providing an entropy based RNG and hardware accelerators for DES, Triple DES, AES, RC4, MV5, and SHA-1. It also ran up to 500 megahertz with the same cache and on die peripherals, but a, a new lower typical power draw of under 600 milliwatts, maxing out at 1460 milliwatts. Nothing in the Spark ecosystem could match it for power consumption, making it suitable for portable sun rays, but it was nevertheless more capable than XScale, meaning the same chip could power the next generation of desktop Sunrays 2. Sunslide did the AU1550, and the first Sunray 2, internally designating the series as P8, came out in 2005. Paired with a 4MB of flash, an ATI R100-derived ES 1000 frame buffer showing 60 megabytes of memory, this, with this design, that, the new hardware could more effortlessly handle more demanding applications at greater resolutions. A typical power, resolu- power consumption for the entire system was just 4 watts plus display. That's not a lot of power. That's really cool. The Sun laptop story is a bit more prosaic. Yes, it may surprise some of you to hear that there really were Sun laptops. That said, however, Sun never designed a laptop of their own themselves, even for their high-margin line, entirely relying on third parties to do so, and even the laptops that Sun did sell were designed and OEM'd by others. Of these partner OEMs, the most notably were US-based RDI and UK-based Tadpole, who later bought out RDI, and the Taiwan-based Nature Worldwide Technology Corporation, nicknamed Nature Tech. What Sun sold as their Ultra 3 laptop was actually a condominium <laughs> of less than five discrete models. Um, Tadpole's Ultra Spark 3i Viper and both versions of their Ultra Spark 2i and Spark O Spark Spark LE Sparkle all based on the Acer TravelMate 420 set chassis as the Ultra A60 and Nature Tech's Ultra Spark 3i Mio Station 999 Ultra Spark 2i PowerBook 888P as well as the Ultra 3 A61 the two lines were visually different with the tadpoles in an arresting lavender case and the 888 and 999 in severe graphite and black, causing some confusion among buyers as they were otherwise completely unrelated. I have a Viper A60 Ultra 3, which puts out a prodigious amount of heat and drains batteries dry in less than an hour full tilt. And you should never use it on your lap if you want to have children or a file system. (laughs) In a fashion, the first Sunray laptop didn't come from Sun either. Tadpole, then newly acquired by General Dynamics, used the modification of the Sparkle... I love that name. <laughs> the Sparkle design as the 2005 Comet 12 and Comet 15 with the same UltraSpark 2 EP and the same Drop This The Sparkle case was fine for an actual Solaris laptop, but calling... The relatively heavy unit, a thin client, was a poor joke, and Sun didn't adopt it for sale. Nature Tech subsequently took their own shot of the market when Sunray 2 was released using desktop unit as a reference design and the same MIPS and API chipsets, but adapting the case and battery from another Taiwanese OEM laptop, the G220 notebook from Elite Group. Nature Tech called it the Jasper 320, because you know all the other Jasper model names had been used. Sun liked the thinner profile and reduced weight, and badged it as the Sunray 2N, for test marketing in Japan in 2006. Um, there's a picture of a box. This is my personal 2N, acquired practically unused in its original packaging. The box is for a Sunray 2N. There's a, a shipping label and everything. If this manifest is to believed, this unit was made and shipped in 2007. The 2N came with both 10100 Ethernet and 802.11 B plus G Wi Fi. The Wi Fi supports WAP WAPSK, WPA2 PSK, and. you <laughs> don't use all the web standards. Um, there's another list of things in the box and a picture of a keyboard um, I'm not going to skip past a lot of pictures of laptops because there's a lot of pictures of laptops if you've never used a sunray device before and I'd be very surprised if more than a small fraction of the people listening to this podcast have used a sunray Ray device uh, please write in and tell us if you have uh, you might find the display window rather curious Rather than localizing prompts and status text in the firmware, Sun chose to use an icon display, on-screen display, which vendors were obliged to implement. What text which does appear is limited to address and status codes. The OSD shown here is an evolution of the blue background OSD used by the first generation Sunrays, but has the same status codes and basic segments. The first window it pops up shows its MAC address and status 1, meaning it's configuring the onboard Ethernet. Within a few seconds it will try to get a DHCP lease and find a host, much like any other active parasite. It's time to connect this silvery yeah, silvery zombie to a source of brains. The following grabs are directly from VGA port through my InnoGenie VGA USB 3. I kind of want one of those, but I'm going to, I'm going to Google this. Sorry, JT. I want a VGA capture. Um, at native resolution of 1024 by 768. The only edits are to censor my internal network information because some of you are delightful and naughty. Then there are a lot of pictures of the boot process with some funny commentary, which you can read if you get the article from our show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's quite long,
0: so uh, um, the pictures stretch it a lot. But there's also a lot of text.
1: Uh, yeah. Clearly um, a fan. I, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> so about five pages of me scrolling through, we get to that's enough preamble. Um and then eventually we start getting to D message and logs from the system. So, yeah, there's a lot here. Uh, this is a really in depth article about looking at these laptops. Um, I think it could have been many, many blog posts actually. Um, thank you for writing these. Um, we cover old VCR a lot on the podcast. Oh, my internet is so bad, yeah. I can't load this page.
0: <laughs> OK. Well, then I'll take over with the next one. Uh, which gets us a bit more into modern age, which is OpenZFS on HPC clusters. Another article by Clara Systems and our Alan Jude. I mean, if he's not busy enough, he writes articles. And this one is telling you why and how to best leverage OpenZFS for your HPC deployment. So as the age of data growth and sprawl continues to evolve, the demand for high-performance secure and scalable data storage solutions has become more critical than ever before. However, despite the rising need, the number of available options for meeting these requirements is dwindling. As a result, businesses and organizations are facing significant challenges in selecting the right solution that fits their specific needs and budget. Fortunately, OpenZFS is emerging as a popular and excellent choice for building the storage backbone of any high-performance computing system. OpenZFS is an advanced file system and volume manager. that offers robust features such as data compression, deduplication, and checksumming. These capabilities allow organizations to store, manage, and access their data efficiently, securely, and with the highest level of integrity. So basically, you ask, what is HPC? High-performance computing? So high-performance computing refers to the use of advanced computing technologies to solve complex computational problems that require a large amount of processing. Generally, this is accomplished by clustering together hundreds of thousands of machines to tackle a workload. All of these machines need access to storage, to pull uh, input from, to store the intermediate data, and to store the final output. High-performance computing (HPC) has revolutionized the way we approach complex problems, enabling researchers and scientists to analyze, simulate, and model complex phenomena that that were previously deemed impossible. HPC has a wide range of applications from physics and climate simulations to weather forecasting, protein folding, oil and gas exploration, financial modeling, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. In the scientific community, HPC is utilized for simulating complex systems, analyzing vast amounts of data, generating accurate predictions, and so on. For example, climate scientists rely on HPC to develop more accurate models of the Earth's climate system and project future changes. Similarly, physicists use HPC to simulate the behavior of subatomic particles and understand the fundamental nature of matter. In the business world, HPC is used for various applications, such as financial modeling, risk analysis, and forecasting. Financial institutions use HPC to analyze large volumes of data and generate insights for investment decisions, while oil and gas companies use HPC to process seismic data and improve the accuracy of exploration and drilling operations. So they have a bit of a bar graph here from uh, most important drivers of HPC storage growth. And the top one is more multi-run iterative simulation workloads. Okay. So, yeah, that's um, a bit of a background here. There's a section about ZFS. I guess we can safely skip that. I mean, if Alan writes about ZFS, that is definitely uh, worth reading, but it's mostly describing... um, what uh, most of us already know. The connection to HPC here is the third of this uh, chapter's paragraph. What really sets OpenZFS apart is its ability to scale to meet the needs of high-performance computing environments. OpenZFS can handle massive amounts of data from terabytes to petabytes, and it can do so with ease of management and without sacrificing performance. OpenZFS is a powerful and flexible storage solution that provides efficient and reliable storage for managing large volumes of data. It's no wonder that so many companies and organizations rely on it for their storage and data management needs. So building resilient, secure storage for HPC, the challenges. So first take a look at some of the common challenges when it comes to building overall storage for HPC. So building storage for APC workloads can be a complex process that involves various challenges. One of the most significant challenges is scalability. It's HPC workloads generate a vast amount of data that it needs, to be stored and it needs to be stored and managed effectively. Therefore, storage solutions must be scalable to accommodate the growing storage requirements of these workloads. Another common issue is reliability. HPC workloads often involve critical data that needs to be accessed and processed accurately and quickly... Therefore, storage solutions must be reliable and fault-tolerant to prevent access to, uh, or corruption even, which could have significant consequences for the HPC workloads and the organizations they serve. Cost is a significant consideration when building storage for HPC. The storage requirement of HPC workloads can be massive, and storage costs can add up up quickly. Therefore, organizations need to find cost-effective solutions that balance the need for high-performance storage with budgetary constraints. Uh, There's a bit more about that, like uh, data protections, efficiency, and uh, other considerations. But then bringing ZFS in to rescue your HPC cluster, they list, uh, or Alan lists here, six uh, reasons that you should consider uh, for the open source quality of OpenZFS, starting with first scalability, uh, which OpenZFS is uh, designed to scale to massive storage systems, ZFS dynamic allocation model means it won't run out of inodes or hit an artificial limit on total storage capacity. This is important in HPC environments that generate unimaginable amounts of data and create trillions and trillions of objects. The second argument is data integrity. OpenZFS uses a copy-and-write architecture to prevent data corruption during a system crash and ensures data integrity using strong checksums. This is especially important for HPC environments where data loss can have serious consequences or worse where ingesting incorrect data could taint years of research. Third is the snapshots and clones feature. OpenZFS provides advanced snapshots and clones capabilities which enable users to create point-in-time copies of data quickly rolling back to earlier versions if needed. This is useful for HPC environments where experiments and simulations generate large amounts of data that need to be preserved. Taking advantage of copy and write nature of clones allows multiple generations of research to reuse and modify the same data while preserving shared blocks. The fourth argument is performance, of course. ZFS provides excellent performance for large file systems, making it well-suited for HPC environments that require high bandwidth and low latency storage. OpenZFS is also an excellent backing store for distributed file systems such as Lustre and Ceph. The fifth is portability. OpenZFS is open source software and has been ported to a wide range of platforms, making it a flexible and portable solution for HPC environments that use different hardware and software configurations. The sixth and last of it is open source. ZFS is an open source software solution which means that it's freely available and can be customized to meet the specific needs of individual organizations. The thriving community around OpenZFS ensures that the burden of maintaining the software is well shared across the various group of contributors, including storage and cloud vendors, appliance and software vendors, and institutional and governmental users. This eliminates costs associated with licensing fees, especially per terabyte fees. There is more, but I think we gave you a little bit of a, a teaser to actually read the full article. Alan concludes with, OpenZFS provides a trusted storage foundation upon which to build massive HPC systems. With its impressive array of features for data integrity and storage optimization, it provides high performance and low cost per terabyte solution for critical storage infrastructure. Choosing ZFS ensures that your organization's investment in HPC includes a high performance and truly capable storage component without scratching the budget. All right, time for the news roundup this week. Self-hosted bookmarks
1: using DAV and HDBD on OpenBSD. Yep, we have this article by Joel Carney, and I've been trying to figure out what their domain, Tum Fatig, means. Um, Um, Maybe read backwards. I Uh, I, I, I don't know,
0: I I can't find anything about it, but looking through Google, I
1: did find an analysis of fatigue models of chairs. So that might be thrilling. Um, Okay. Next week on Chairs Now, uh, talking about fatigue models, uh, Joel (laughs) writes, I've long time used NextCloud and the Flocus iOS app and Firefox plugin to store, manage, and use my bookmarks. In reality, I don't use the NextCloud interface. I use Flocus and it works well for me. In my journey to quit NextCloud, like any good addiction, the only acceptable option was to keep using Flocus was getting a DAV self-hosted share, but as far as I know, HTTPD does not provide a DAV feature yet. I've already used Bacayle to self-host my calendars and address books, and it's working great. So here's a quick and dirty way to get, to provide DAV using OpenDSD's HTTPD. I think I'm just gonna give summaries because there's a lot of commands here. Install the PHP environment. There's some install commands. Uh, Set up the DAV web space. Sabre DAV is not an application, it's a framework. This means that we need now need to write some code to actually do DAV things. The documentation example provides a single-user DAV code model. Anyone knowing the URL and calling server.php would be able to create, delete, rename, manage the files. That's not, not what we want. Um, what we want is authenticated access, users' data separation of obscured URLs, and users' keep the code simple. We don't want DAV. Space and credentials to be easily guessable, so we randomly generate strings for those. One can use a shell command. Authenticated access, we can achieve this by using HTTPD and the HTPass feature by creating credentials, configuring the server. I'm not using it, but if you wish to grant access to several users on the same DAV space, you could either add credentials to the HTPass file or add authenticate with directives to the HTTP location. Note that any use of granted credentials will have the same read write access to the data. I wonder if you could use client certificates as well. That'd be a lot um, harder to manage, but but better, maybe. Uh, user data separation. Each set of users will have access to a dedicated subdirectory. Keep the code simple. We have a single PHP that detects as much info as possible. This PHP file replaces server.php example. Its name is used to provide access to the directory with the same name. It's a PHP file. It's not very long. Um, adding more spaces and then playing with DAV. Everything is not set up to enjoy the DAV web spaces. Use your DAV client of choice to connect to something like uh, example.com slash uh, obs. I can't, I can't say it today. Uh, Obsfocated obsficate, obs, and manage your files. Um, using Flocus is just a matter of configuring the account. Thanks, Joel. That's a nice, helpful little short piece of um, technical advice.
0: All right. And we're continuing in the how to style. Uh, we found an article uh, on x61.sh about Terraform plus Proxmox plus OpenBSD is love. And here we go. Uh, Terraform, an infrastructure as code tool, allows us to define and provision infrastructure resources across various platforms. In our case, we'll be Proxmox. And we need the Terraform provider for Proxmox, which is Telmate, 8 that enables seamless integration between Terraform and Proxmox. Installing and setup. Uh, So they have a Terraform in ports. You can do as package underscore add Terraform, but not the Proxmox plugin slash provider. They have a half-baked part of it they mentioned, but so you have two options now. You build it yourself, read the Terraforms readme, or use Linux. Mm. Now that you have Terraform and Proxmox plugin provider, we need to create a user in Proxmox that allows our Terraform plan to interact with it. We'll do it from the command line. It will add some of the roles in Proxmox to give sufficient permissions to Terraform so they show how they run the commands and what needs to be done. Uh, It's too difficult to read because there's a lot of dots between uh, individual providers. Um, But now it's time to create a Terraform configuration file, usually with a .tf extension, that defines your Proxmox resource. Start by creating a new directory for your project, and within it create a file named main.tf to hold your configuration. Okay, they show what the file should contain uh and that's only a couple lines to get started okay Uh, of course there is the uh, url pm api url that you should exchange with your own as well as pm user and pm password with the appropriate values for your proxmox environment so this configuration tells terraform to connect to your proxmox api and then do the setup now it's time to create a terraform config for our OpenBSD template in proxmox so that defines what it should actually do, like what kind of uh, system it should create, how many cores, how many CPUs, how much memory, how many disk devices, and what size they should have. Now, that is pretty much all we need. Keep in mind that it will not create the clones with the bigger disks than the original or anything like it. It will keep it the same, but they need more storage. They will just add one big disk and mount it over the server as a new extra disk. We don't have CloudInit for OBSD, but I'm working on FART FARTInit, no joke. A little script that will take all these parameters on Proxmox or Terraform and set up the server on booting time. Restart itself and delete all the extra garbage inside of it. The next article will show an example of it. So there. provisioning all the things. Now that we have defined Proxmox resources, we want to provision. And for that, we need mainly three commands. Terraform init, which initializes the Terraform project, and downloads any necessary dependencies, including the Proxmox provider plugin we defined earlier. Then the second is the Terraform plan. This shows you a preview of the changes. Terraform will apply, validates that, and ensures there are no errors. And then actually Terraform apply, which finally is doing the commands on the remote resource and following the configuration that you defined. You will be prompted to confirm the changes, so we can still Say no, don't kill all the things that I just set up earlier and uh, save yourself. But if you really want to go ahead and you don't have, nothing, have uh, nothing else that can't be taken away, uh, then definitely go for it. And uh, it shows the output here. So check out the article for the details, how the plan looks like and what needs to be created as well as the Terraform apply. And finally, if you go to the dashboard of Proxmox, you will see three new machines running. Very nice. And to check out one of them, you'll see the IP on the plan output. So you can always get that information, what which IP got assigned to which machine. And that's all. We are done. Next time, we'll try to set up our new VMs using fart init, which is probably a
1: play on Cloud init. Why, why, why wasn't it called bot init? Um, c- can you remember what the FreeBSD version of Cloud init is called? It's some French word. I can't remember.
0: Oh, another French word? Uh, like poudrier. Yeah. Um
1: Yeah, like, like poudrier but about clouds. I can't remember what it is. Good question.
0: I always thought it would be cloud in it as well. we have an own. Clouded
1: yeah, clouded yeah. Ba- Baptiste Poudreire? started writing one and it's got a different name and it's, oh. it's a French word. Okay. I guess so I guess if I start writing tools I can start naming them in Gaelic. I don't speak Gaelic. <laughs> I going to name them <laughs> stupid things.
0: Just kill us all. I've named uh, so many things. Our th- readers know, then Feedback at TV is your address to educate us.
1: Could you also explain how you're reading the podcast? Because we're not making transcriptions. There's that. Okay. (laughs) Next up, we have a blog post from Maximilian Gola. I hope that's their name. I mean, it's like MG. Like I'm picking. Uh, Saving energy, home server that automatically suspends to RAM and wakes up again. Just the suspend and resume is a hilariously uh, hilarious goal to have achieved on any computer. which is used for Plex media streaming and time machine backups. They're right. This blog post is not intended as a step-by-step guide. You'll need to figure it out yourself. 43 watts is just too much. It does not sound like that much, but running a 24-7 home server that draws 43 watts in idle is quite expensive. Considering the latest electricity prices of about 49 euro cent kilowatt hour here in Germany as of October 2022, a simple solution to this problem is a script that automatically suspends the server when it is not used and another script to wake up the server again in case there was work to do. To my surprise, I could not find any out-of-the-box solution, so I thought it was worthwhile to write about it. Uh, And then they have a hello, Hacker News. Because so many people are asking for it, the server specs are an Intel i5 11400, ASRock B560 Pro 4, crucial DDR4, two two times eight gigs, five disks, an NVMe, 35400 RPM, 17200 RPM. I update UEFI and activated Active State Power Management, ASPM. Then I installed PowerTop 2 and tuned some settings, enabled Audio Kodak and satellite power management. This way I reduced the consumption to 39 watts in idle and only 2 watts during sleep. I also decided to install HD idle, a software that suspends the hard disks after only 5 minutes of inactivity, which reduced the power consumption from 39 watts to 23 during idle. That's so cool, but the M1 Mac Mini behind me idles at 1 watt. Um, when it's turned on, I don't know how they do it, it's magic. That's cool though. Um, Less impressive now. <laughs> why aren't there any good solutions out there? Why isn't this built into every major operating system by now? Why isn't this the default or at least a configuration option? Seriously, there's so much potential to save energy in IT. Okay, and then our next regression is I asked somebody from a major streaming video provider, and they said, if the machine is not busy, we turn it off. That's the other that's the other way to save power in IT. Um, and I guess with a fleet of 10,000 machines, it does save you quite a lot of power, just turning them off if they're not working. Requirements specification. Currently, the server is primarily used for two things, Plex media streaming and time machine backups. So I was forced to find a way to automatically suspend the server but prevent it from sleeping um, if any of the two services are in use. Moreover, I needed a way to wake up the server remotely, so in case that I'm not home, I could still access Plex, which led to a need to the following two components. A script that suspends the server automatically in the case the server is not used. A mobile-friendly website that allowed me to wake up the server in the case I need it. Finally, I do have a Raspberry Pi 4 Model B 4 gb at home that is running all the time. This Pi is used for hosting Home Assistant and Pi Hole and could be very handy for monitoring the sleep state of the server and hosting the wake up website. The high level idea that came to mind looks similar to this. Max and my local network access the server via SMB for time machine backups. From remote, I access Plex via HTTPS streaming. In case the server sleeps, I need a convenient solution to wake the server remotely via my smartphone. The Raspberry Pi is running 24-7 and already has Home Assistant that offers Wake on LAN and Device Tracker integration. Implementation on the shoulder of giants. Fast forward a couple of weeks, testing various options. My setup currently looks like this. The server implements a ring buffer and checks for activities once per minute. To monitor Plex activities, we use the Plex local API. And for Time Machine, we simply monitor any file access at slash mount using LSOF. In case there's been no activity for 15 consecutive minutes, the server goes to sleep. Nobody streams. Pausing a video doesn't count as activity, and no backup is running. A web server on the Raspberry Pi hosts a website that obtains the current state of the server provided via the Home Assistant REST API. In case the server sleeps, and I like to backup or stream something, I can wake the server using a simple button press that sends a magic packet using Wake-on-LAN Perl script. How to sleep um, and when better not to? My Backup disk is mounted under slash mount backup. We monitor whether this has any file access on slash mount, uh, some Python. Uh, monitoring Plex, there are many, way, many possible solutions to this. The most reliable was to use the local Plex API. In contrast to simpler solutions, this comes the advantage that we can differentiate between active playbacks and people that have paused the streaming, but still have the browser tab open, usually preventing the server from sleeping. You can find your account authentication tokens here. Um, there's an article, not just your tokens. They haven't downloaded your tokens for you. There's some more Python. You could read it. Uh, putting it all together, the script runs once per minute and suspends the server after 15 consecutive minutes without any activity by calling uh, PM suspend. To avoid the need, I think this is running on Linux. Uh, to, be, to avoid the need to run the script as root, consider adding my user equals all new password to PM suspend under your sudoers file. Waking up again. If you want to run this on FreeBSD, you can just swap pm suspend for zzz, um, assuming your server can suspend and resume, which it might be able to. I think OpenBSD also has zzzzz, three z's, not four. How to wake up again. Um, enable wake on LAN. There are many tutorials out there, but check your BIOS UEFI first and install ETH tool and configure a wake on LAN service that re-enables wake on LAN every time you reboot the machine. Um, we create a mobile-friendly website that queries and displays the current server stats using the Home Assistant REST API. It also offers a button that sends a magic packet using Wake Online Perl script, Python version 3. Currently, there is no authentication in place if you feel you need. It should be super easy to add HTTP basic authentication by tweaking the configuration of your web server. Querying Home Assistant. Oh my god, PHP. Yes, I know. After an installing and configuring Home Assistant Wake Online integration, we can, can query a Home Assistant REST API. Um, there's some PHP now, um, and then more PHP for waking up a server and configuring Time Machine. Wake on LAN only works when you use the host name of the server, not its IP address. This way, macOS will automatically send Wake on LAN, um, send a magic Wake on LAN packet every time it starts a backup, which will wake up the server. Thank you to Jesse Cat for this hint. Sharing is caring. You can download the source of all these scripts here, and there's a link to GitHub. I hope this is helpful for some. There are probably many issues with it. Please feel free to fork and improve. And some questions and answers. How much energy have you saved using this already? In 140 days, about 60 euros. The server was sleeping 89% of the time. Without the script, uh, 140 days times 43 watts times 24 hours equals 144 kilowatt hours, which counts for about seven euros, assuming 49 sets kilowatt hour. Instead, due to the script, the server sleeps for 125 days and was only idling for about 15 days, resulting in about 27 kilowatt hours in total, which accounts for 13 euros. What if Time Machine starts a backup, but the server is not available because it's sleeping? That's easy, just make sure you use the host name instead of the server. What if I start Plex on my TV, but forget to wake the server? This is not an issue, just wake the server, and after about 30 seconds, Plex will show all your media and streaming. I wonder if you could use... Ha proxy or something similar as a load balancer in between Plex and the server. And then the load balancer will know the machine is asleep because it stops responding. And when it gets a request, you can use that to trigger the wake on lan And then you don't need to refresh because it's all being uh-huh. hit by Plex. That might be... I don't, I don't know how you're going to get feedback. You're not going to listen to um, 40 minutes of a podcast to get there. I think this is really cool. Um, mm. I think this i think the way that the m1 mac mini behind me is getting to one watt ish idle is because it's using low power idle states and so the system's oh, yeah. not asleep it's it's always awake and it's idling because it's using um like s2 idle stuff which this is the reason it exists so you can build you know um applications and by application i mean devices like things like phones where they're never really asleep you can be woken up by hardware events very quickly so there's never this resume phase um i think of I know a ton of people hate this because they think it's just terrible suspend, but it could enable applications like this. Now, there's like a hardware synchronicity to get, but I, I just wish we had the tools for it. I don't think it's practical for anybody to build stuff with this as it exists now. And I've heard that um, hardware platform developers are very annoyed about it, annoyed at Intel about this. So there's a lot of problems, but it is cool and we could get there. And I mean, just going from 43 watts idle down to 23 watts, is it? Yeah, 23 watts idle. That's an incredible saving. And that's almost, that's, you know, what my wireless router probably draws, or it's what the Mm. wireless router I measured draws. So it's definitely worth trying to tune this, especially if you're going to have to leave stuff on all the time. Yeah,
0: and it all adds up. I mean, even if electricity prices uh, drop at one point, people still run a lot of hardware at home.
1: They're never going to drop, Benedict. Yeah, I know. Energy companies are very happy right now.
0: In that regard, yeah. <laughs> so we might as well save a bit of our own and uh, keep the cash out of their pockets. Okay. Um, and the namesake for this episode is Against Innovation by DadaDrummer, substack.com. This goes like the following. This week, Twitter was supposed to remove checks on verified accounts and do whatever else its autocratic owner decides to do next. So here, by the way, this is from April 4, 2023. So... A bit of uh, time has passed since then, Um, and yet the destabilization effect is just as real. No one knows when the next update will come or what it will bring exactly, which means users not only have no say in the matter, but can't even adjust in anticipation. It's been destructive to the use of the platform as a communicative tool, to say the least. And yet this erratic behavior is all too familiar from our use of other supposedly more rationally managed software that we depend on. Who knows what the next operating system update will do to the digital tools we use each day? What all their files will be rendered unreadable? Or what painstakingly curated digital music collection will suddenly be scrambled? There's a link to a separate thing? Or no, just, just emphasis. Okay. I thought it was underlined because it was a link. Okay. Um, which is why two years ago this month, I disconnected my recording studio from the internet entirely. This wasn't an analog rebellion. I didn't trash my studio computer and replace it with vintage tape machines. On the contrary, I did it to preserve the digital audio tools I have come to rely on. I wanted my tools to continue working the way I know. The familiarity is part of my skill set in my studio. And as a self-taught DIY audio engineer, do it yourself. I don't have a lot of skills to spare. Uh, so what had happened earlier that spring was a routine software update to a piece of my digital studio? but the update rendered a different crucial piece incompatible. So I updated that, which made another piece incompatible. An expensive piece. And I couldn't update that. That was at the height of the pandemic. Who could afford to update anything? Moreover, I was in the middle of a project, mixing our album, a Sky Record, and I very much wanted to continue along the lines I had started. In the digital era, we are all accustomed to fast-moving technology. But could I really no longer make it through even one album from start to finish on the same equipment? And if not, how do we ever come to any kind of mastery of our tools? The network betraying my studio was also the source of answers to such questions, of course. I went online and started asking everyone I know in audio engineering how to deal with this situation. To my surprise, the advice I got back was nearly unanimous. Unplug. Stop updating. Revert to the stable system you had before and take everything offline so this doesn't happen again. It seemed a clever solution to my small-scale personal studio problem, but I was taken aback when some of the professionals who offered this advice said it is what they do, too, even with their very expensive skill sets. Could it be that some of the most sophisticated audio technicians I know, mastering engineers in particular, those tasked in our industry with maintaining and constantly improving audio standards, choose to ignore innovation for the sake of stability? This counterintuitive approach reminded me of Susan Sontag's early essay Against Interpretation in 1964 where she urged not only critics but artisans themselves to ignore the contemporary rage for symbolism for heavy interpretive frameworks what is important now is to recover our senses we must learn to see more to hear more to feel more she wrote not particularly in this voice trying to free Kafka and Beckett from the endless update critics were then imposed on these texts Sontag Uh, Sontag, that is with uh, one N for the Germans among me, Uh, (laughs) looked at mushroomy interpretations as so much distracting. So our task, quote, is not to find the maximum amount of content in a work of art, much less to squeeze more content out of the work that is already there. Our task is to cut back content so that we can see the thing at all. Quote, end. I took the advice, updating my digital audio tools would give me more choices, more drop-down menus, more emulation of spaces I do not occupy, classic equipment I do not own, and a seemingly limitless ability to manipulate any sound that I can actually make with my body and my instruments. But were these the choices I needed, or did I need to better see the thing I was making at all? By that point, I had gone far down the road of updates that I had to buy a pirate copy of an unsupported operating system to fully revert. I did. It worked. I finished the album, and my studio is still offline. Of course, refusing to update, taking a stand against innovation, means staying put, at least technologically. Does that mean stylistically, too? I could. though it could. I cannot, without updating, take advantage of the latest digital audio products, and therefore some of the latest trends. But there's another path to development, one that feels more productive to me personally in the digital environment and it starts with making committed choices about tools and platforms. This is what I think the current owner of Twitter who mistakes memes for, for wit can't appreciate. Limiting options can sometimes lead to wild creativity, the kind we witness in Kafka and Beckett in fact. Recently I had to dismantle my studio for an entirely different, very analog reason plumbing repairs to the building we live in. And when I put it all back together it worked the same as before. Thank God. Isn't that precisely what you hope for in such a situation? I can't. Or well, why can't that be what we sometimes aim for in the digital environment too? Yeah, but what about security updates, I would say?
1: Well, who cares about security updates? <laughs> um, I mean, like the, the response to that is any anything that hurts usability will be bypassed. And so like th- these things shouldn't be bundled together. Um, these updates aren't desirable, but I, I also know this is quite a common approach in the music industry. So John Hopkins was the musician, um, was quite famous for using a very old version of Cubase, like 15 years after it had gone out of date. And I'm sure he doesn't do that now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't like software updates. They very rarely bring me improvements. Um, <laughs> they, they more typically break stuff or change things in ways that I wasn't expecting. Like FreeBSD went through a whole bunch of um, ports, updates to Vim where it changed the default behaviors in Vim and I had to go and figure out not what features I was using which were broken, but what features I'd never heard of were now enabled by default. I had to figure out what they were and that's incredibly difficult. Like, oh, the defaults have changed and now I need to learn what they were. You don't have anything to Google for. You're just like, why is Vim doing this weird thing? Mm, Um, Yeah, so I understand the sentiment.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sometimes it's good to be on the bleeding edge, but sometimes there's more bleeding involved.
1: I, I mean, like, I don't think any oh, change when I was, like people are going to complain. Yeah,
0: so there was an um, an iOS update during the conference, and so one I typically do that because at conferences, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, but one of the messages from the update said. We after the installation, we will remove all your apps from the phone and then reinstall them again and I'm like, "Not gonna happen because if you kill the airplane uh app which holds my ticket, I cannot fly, and if that goes wrong, then I can't leave the country in legal ways
1: or or a simpler one if it removes threeMA from your phone, you no longer have working threema and how are you meant to arrange dinner yeah, like things I- like that and <laughs>
0: I mean, in a travel situation, it's special. You're normally at home and you can do the update there. But even there, it could remove your any banking apps and all that in the wrong way. And what Next time you have the updated OS, but the apps aren't there. Or
1: aren't Yeah, and, the and lots of these apps are not trivial to move. Like mm-hmm. the banking apps I use, which I was using to pay for stuff while in Canada, if they were removed from my phone and I had to set them up again, well, I didn't actually have all of the cards with me. So that would yeah. have been... Super
0: inconvenient. (laughs) Verification and all that. And sometimes the banks are a bit slower to catch the newest OS updates. So there's, you can really prick yourself in unintended ways by just saying, oh, yes, give me the updates or auto update even. Uh, But definitely let us know your thoughts about these things, how you handle updates or anything else um, that is coming as messages on your screen. Send this to feedback at TV, so we have something to discuss maybe with you or get your per yeah per view of the situation, and then we'll get a bit brighter in that regard or have your opinion also on the show.
1: Also, if you come across um, articles or blog posts or cool pieces of BSD news and you'd like to have them talked about in the show or you think they'd be perfect content for us to discuss but we just don't seem to find, please send it in. Don't assume that we catch everything. Um, We we build from the community that listens, and so we're really happy to get suggestions for things to cover. And if it's from people that are not represented well in our community, that's even better. Uh, But yeah, send stuff through. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated, so that it then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. and This key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to Tarsnap.com to learn more.